Marcus Paul, almost a public figure. Marcus Paul in the morning. Marcus Paul in the morning. Marcus Paul in the mornings, right across Australia. On the iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio apps. The biggest issues. The biggest guess. Marcus Paul in the morning starts now. Okay, good morning and welcome to Tuesday. Wonderful to have your company, Marcus Paul, in the morning. Well, lots said yesterday, of course, about the uh, the great debate. <laughs> it wasn't particularly great. Who won? Who cares? I'm more interested in the opinion polls, not only the Ipsos poll, but uh, the other one, the big one in the Australian uh, which well and truly points to the fact that, well, I think Australians have had a gutful of the current mob in power and they're ready to kick them out. We will see what happens. But uh, to the debate itself, uh, it was a, well, it was, it was a, just a, a bun fight. You know, both Albo and Skomos yelling at each other. Uh, the moderator was terrible, although I won't go as far as some like Mark Latham did yesterday, and I'll get to that in a couple of moments. I mean, that bloke, his behaviour on social media is beyond the pale sometimes. Anyway, um, what did you make of it? You can always let me know uh, on the Facebook page, as many of you have. I got an overwhelming response that many of you thought that it was probably uh, close to a an Albanese victory, but that's no surprise <laughs> considering my followers. Uh, I don't know. I, I kind of, I'm going to be honest, I got the shits with it. I didn't like the way it was run. I, I certainly didn't like the fact that it was stacked with, you know, people like Deborah Knight and Chris Ullman. Um, I don't know the other journo from The Australian or wherever he was from, a, a nine newspaper. Um, so I, I kind of, yeah. I think the one on Wednesday, uh, tomorrow night, will be much better. Uh, the Seven Network are leaving Channel 9 for dead uh, when it comes to decent television production. Not only was it, you know, uh, badly moderated and, you know, there were silly questions from people like Deb Knight who, you know, made some guy up by the name of Mario to try and get Anthony Albanese in a gotcha question and all the rest of it. I, you know, oh, I just shake my head sometimes. But... Um, you know, it did lead to a, a news cycle yesterday with many people saying that, uh, you know, both leaders were emotional, both had their say and uh, both were, I think, uh, fairly strong. But the problem was you, a lot of the time you just got caught up in the emotion of it all and the fact that, you know, it wasn't moderated, they didn't stick to the rules of time and they interrupted and spoke over each other and it just became a real shit fight. Anyway, um, if you want to comment on the debate, I think we move past it now, don't we? Uh, tomorrow night's will be uh, probably the better one and the most important one, considering it will be the final time that uh, the two leaders will face off before the election proper on Saturday week. All right, so we'll go through uh, some of the news of the day, uh, what was happening on the campaign trail yesterday, um, some... Um, of the commentary from that, including, as I say, what Mark Latham had to say, it made news itself. Uh, we'll also have a look at some other news. We'll get away from the election campaign. I want to talk a little bit about, uh, well, what's happening with Melissa Caddick's 
victims, are they going to get their money? Or is her family going to get their hands on it first, including that grubby husband of hers? I'll get to that story. Also, something that made me shake my head. You know, a bloke on the Gold Coast who ordinarily would be praised for stopping an alleged shoplifter has instead apparently been stood down by his employer, by Super Cheap Auto. I'll talk about that story. Oh, by the way, um, one of our producers at Starter FM, Alex, uh, I think he caught up with Susan Templeman at the Hawkesbury show the other day and asked her a few questions for me. So uh, you'll hear Alex in the program with Susan Templeman as well. Um, a bit of a, an infield interview, uh, which Alex has done for us and um, He'll ask her a few questions about the upcoming poll as well. So all that on the way. Don't forget, you can give me a call anytime. 0406521250. That's for the Marcus Paul in the Morning hotline. It's open 24-7. You can like, comment and follow the Facebook page. Um, and also, of course, you can send me an email. Marcus.Paul at starterfm.com.au Thank you to everybody who uh, uh, sent us um, some messages about my chat yesterday with Jordan Shanks, Friendly Geordies. The podcast has gone off. <laughs> so many uh, downloads. Uh, very popular, that one. So still there if you yet to hear back. Uh, if you yet to hear it in full, you can download that from where you get your favourite podcasts from. All right, the latest news. We'll keep you up to date with that. Thanks to Air News. Some great tunes as well. So let's get into it. On this Tuesday morning, it is May the 10th. Marcus Paul in the morning. How do you define a woman, Mr Albanese? An adult female. An adult female. Mr. Morrison? Yes, I'm adult, a member of the female sex. Because there's been a degree of confusion around that issue, so good to get your clarity on Not that. Not confused at all. I don't think it's confusing. All right, let's get into it. The news and the opinion polls yesterday weren't pretty for the federal government. Labor has extended its lead over the coalition following last week's interest rate rise by the Reserve, with opposition leader Anthony Albanese gaining ground on Scott Morrison as the preferred Prime Minister. According to the latest news poll in The Australian yesterday, the final two-week stretch of the election campaign has seen female voters favour Labor as the party better equipped to address the rising cost of living. The news poll indicated popular support for Labor lifting a point to 39%, with the coalition falling a point to 35%. This is the largest lead Labor has held over the coalition since the beginning of the election campaign. Now, let's have a look. Who would win the election today? Based on two-party preferred vote preference flows, based on recent federal and state elections, Labor 54%, Liberal 46%. Who would make a better PM? Well, Scott Morrison still slightly leads Anthony Albanese in this poll, in the news poll, 44% to 42%, while 14% of those surveyed remain uncommitted. There we go. So Labor's two-party preferred vote has risen 54 to 46, a two-point turnaround over the past week. If repeated on polling day in a couple of weeks' time on May the 21st, these national figures could give Labor a majority victory. 
In the wake of a campaign week dominated by discussions around inflation and the rising cost of living, Mr Morrison suffered a fall in his approval ratings. Now, this has given Anthony Albanese a lift in the contest over who voters think would make the better Prime Minister. And as I pointed to, Albo's rating has risen three points to 42%. Now, of course, Scott Morrison is still slightly ahead after falling a point to 44%, but it is the narrowest margin between the two leaders since early April, with 14% of voters still undecided. Now, voters have nominated Labor marginally ahead of the coalition as the party considered better at managing their concerns about inflation. When asked which government would be better at managing cost of living pressures, 44% nominated an Albanese-led Labor government over 41% in favour of a Morrison government. Male voters were evenly split at 44%, but female voters lent heavily toward Labor, 45% to 38%, with 17% still undecided. Now, age was also a factor, with 59% of voters aged over 65 nominating the coalition and 57% of 18 to 34-year-olds backing Labor. No real surprises there. Those aged 50 to 64 were also strongly in favour of the coalition, 45% to 38%, while 45% of the 35 to 49-year-old demographic nominated Labor compared to 36% for the coalition on this question. Satisfaction in Mr Morrison's performance has fallen three points to 41%, while those dissatisfied rose four points to 55%, giving him a net negative approval rating of minus 14. Now, that is the lowest score for the Prime Minister since early March. Albo, meanwhile, rose a point to 41% and improved his dissatisfaction rating two points to 47%, leaving him with a net negative rating of minus six. What it all means is that things will get spicy if they haven't already following the debate a couple of nights ago as we lead into the final two weeks of this election campaign. If you would like to have your say at any time, you can give us a call. The Marcus Paul in the Morning hotline is there for you. 0406521250. Or, of course, leave your messages and your comments on the Facebook page. This is Alex Allerheim reporting for Starter FM. I'm here with Susan Templeman, the uh, local member for Wall Street. Macquarie. Macquarie, <laughs> um, the, which covers the Blue Mountains in Windsor. So the question I ask is, how's the campaign trail going for you so far? Do you know, I think we'll know in a few weeks when the votes come in how it's going, but I'm having a ball, speaking with people, having lots of discussions. People's minds have now turned to the election and they're asking questions about you know what they should do and who's going to be the best representative for them. I'm always really happy to have those discussions. So sure. it, it's full on, but, but really engaging and what I'm seeing more than I've ever seen before is young people wanting to ask questions about a whole range of things and that's really heartening to have young people actively for sure, for taking sure. part. And you uh, helped secure, was it, was it the uh, Labor that helped secure funding for MySpace here right here in Hawkesbury? Yeah for Headspace. Headspace. Well you know I have fought for Headspace to be set up in the Hawkesbury for years and years and years. It's really personal for me. You know, it goes back to the experience my daughter had and how her life might have been different if she had had access sure. to a headspace. Uh, and so I was really...
really proud while the floods were still going to announce that if we win we will put money in and a week later the government suddenly announced that they, they would also put money in so either way you know we're winners here in the Hawkesbury with a much needed youth mental health service which isn't going to solve every problem by any means and I don't want to raise people's expectations about that but it's the first plank of what we need to really work with our young people. 100% I wholeheartedly agree with you. And last of all do you have anything you want to say to Marcus? Uh, look just keep doing what you're doing. Um, I'm such a fan of a variety and diversity of media because we need a whole range of voices not not just those on you know those very elite mainstream places sure. so so all for you know keep stirring 100% thank you very much for your time today Susan it's been lovely having a chat with you thank you Alright, Tuesday morning, welcome back to it. Well, we've heard that many have already uh, pre-polled. Yep, the federal election is still two Saturdays away. Well, that's the official voting day, but pre-poll booths have seen thousands of early voters as the race to elect our next Prime Minister officially started yesterday. Pre-polling saw tens of thousands of people queue to place their ballot in this year's federal election. Queues formed early yesterday morning as pre-poll booths opened in communities stretching from the coast to the bush and everywhere in between. A spokesman for the Australian Electoral Commission said people were passionate about voting after reports of wait times growing at booths. We've had reports of some locations experiencing low no queues and some with a wait time required. Fortunately, we don't see anything like we've seen in some other jurisdictions in terms of queue times. In addition, there is a full two-week early voting period available, as well as Election Day itself. Now, the Australian Electoral Commission spokesman said if queues do get too long, the Commission encourages voters to come back another time. We've worked really hard to minimise queues where possible, including working with Deakin University of Polling Place setup and queuing methodology. <laughs> Ultimately, though... Whenever you have an in-person event of this scale where people effectively choose when and where they uh, vote, there will be queues. At the previous federal election back in 2019, they estimated that approximately 75% of voters were able to get in and out in 15 minutes or less, and that's pretty good. Voters in polling booths in the state's south told journalists that the ongoing threat of COVID was a major reason for voting before election day proper. Meanwhile, others see voting as something they want to get over and done with. One voter in the ACT who didn't wish to be named said lining up on election day is a pain in the ass. <laughs> well, for some it probably is. Others enjoy the, you know, traditional election day sausage sizzle. Pre-poll voting comes as a Sydney Liberal MP fighting to retain a hotly contested seat has debunked claims... He won't be seen with Prime Minister Scott Morrison during the campaign trail. That's the North Sydney ghost. <laughs> no, the North Sydney MP Trent Zimmerman shut down claims by opposition leader Anthony Albanese that he had banished the Prime Minister from joining him on the campaign trail. Uh, there we go. Bad weather couldn't deter voters from pre-polling. 
Down in Campbelltown at the Civic Centre as hundreds of residents lined up to cast their vote in the federal election yesterday, voters from Hume and the MacArthur seats had their say with data from day one of the SNAP pre-poll survey at the booth showing the coalition running strong with 45% of the vote ahead of Labor at 35%. Wow, that's a Daily Telegraph poll, so you can take that with a grain of salt. Out of the 100 people surveyed, the Greens came in at 9% with the United Australia Party at 4%, One Nation at 3% and the Independents at 3%. Currently, Liberals Angus Taylor holds the seat of Hume, while Labor's Mike Freelander holds the seat of MacArthur. Now, both those seats are pretty safe, I have to say. All right, well, if you want to have your say, uh, you can call us at any time on the Marcus Paul in the Morning Hotline. It's there for you now, 0406 All right, 0406 And just a reminder, of course, that pre-polling continues with booths open again this morning. Hey, Marcus, um, it's Mr. Anonymous here. I'd really like to keep this anonymous, but like to get the website out because it's about the horrible treatment of those with the NBIS. Um, I suggest the website, scumbagscomo.com. Just repeating, the website, scumbagscomo.com. Check it out. Lots of links, lots of audio. Check it out. Really worth checking out. Thank you. Bye. If you like, you can give me a call. What's the number, Marcus? 0406-521-250. Anytime, 24-7. Call me on. Have your say on the Marcus Paul in the Morning Show. On Starter FM. All right, welcome back. Well, one of the things uh, that was pretty common... Uh, from the leaders' debate, the one held on the Nine Network on Sunday night, was the fact that it was pretty poorly run. It was a shambles, and there's little doubt that the inexperienced moderator lost control of the situation. Now, uh, Sarah Abbo is her name, of course, and she's a reporter for the Nine flagship show for Current Affairs 60 Minutes. She's probably a very good reporter. I haven't seen a lot of her work, but I think she was well and truly out of her depth on Sunday. But uh, I wouldn't go as far as what One Nation MP Mark Latham did on Twitter in my criticism. I mean, Latham has been slammed by everybody, uh, social media users, and even those within his own, well, parliament, parliamentary colleagues in New South Wales after he played on Nine presenter Sarah Abbo's last name to tweet what can only be described really as a racial slur. Now, Latham took to Twitter on Sunday night to write, never trust an Abbo with something as important as that. After the 60 Minutes host moderated the chaotic debate, but the use of Anne before her last name has left people all shocked, flabbergasted. Myself included, I think it's beyond the pale, to be honest. Australians, an Aboriginal Australian and Liberal Party politician, Warren Mundine, said he was being too smart and too clever. Well, I think Warren is being too kind. He can't ignore what he's done. Even if he said people are reading into something he didn't say, he needs to explain why he did say that an abo. There we go. He can't just get away with that type of stuff. Everyone knows I'm a conservative Aboriginal, but it's just about the worst thing you can be called. 
Uh, that, of course, was Warren Mundine. New South Wales Labor leader Chris Minn said the comments were shameful and horrific. He said if that's the link he was trying to make, it shameful and horrific and not part of our public dialogue. And hopefully he clarifies what he's talking about or apologises for it. Unless you did an outstanding job in difficult circumstances, there wouldn't be much more of a high-pressure job than moderating a leader's debate two weeks before the federal election on a Sunday night, and she did an extraordinary job. No one deserves that kind of ridicule and abuse. I agree with Chris Min's sentiments. New South Wales Treasurer Mac Keane also rebuked Mark Latham for his conduct. Mark Latham's appalling trolling on social media again proves Australia got it right when they rejected him. His thinly veiled racist comment here is clearly deliberate. Race is not a political punchline. Words like that are hateful and divisive, just like Mr Latham, he wrote on social media. All right, well, Nine's Director of News and Current Affairs, Darren Wick, described the tweet referencing their employee, Miss Abbo, as a disgrace, racist and totally unacceptable and revealed the media company will be reporting the comments to authorities. He said in a statement, the tweet from Mark Latham last night is a disgrace, racist and totally unacceptable. Sarah Abbo is an outstanding journalist and handled the robust nature of the debate with intelligence, calmness and professionalism that can't be said for Mr Latham's tweet. We will be reporting his comments to authorities. Yeah, look, there's no doubt that I think Miss Abbo was a little inexperienced and probably should have asserted herself a little bit more into the debate. But, I mean, it's, you know, to try and moderate it better, to stop both Albo and ScoMo screaming at each other and talking over each other because people were probably tuning out. Uh, and it didn't make for a, you know, a, a good discussion, in my opinion. Um, but, you know, Mark Latham, as always, tends to take things just a little too far. When pressed on what he meant by the tweet... Mr Latham apparently told the Daily Telegraph that he was referencing Miss Abbo and that the meaning of the words is up to the writer and not the listener. He basically is trying to make himself out to be the victim here again now and, uh, as always, he's calling out somebody else. In this case, it's the outrage industry. The outrage industry fails to understand how words can have multiple meanings and the true meaning lies with the speaker, not necessarily the listener, he said. That's his excuse. So basically, he's playing the victim card. When asked why he added an an before the word abo, if he was referring only to Miss Abo as the individual, Mr Latham responded, that's like Bill Clinton and it's depending on what... Uh, it, uh, uh, why would I even bother going on with this rubbish? Apparently, One Nation leader Pauline Hansen hasn't commented yet on Mark Latham's tweet, but nobody can excuse it. It was beyond the pale, and I think he owes Sarah Abbo an apology. Marcus Paul in the morning. Well, in fact, I know he does. He owes her an apology. The quicker, the better, Mark. Wow. What? What do you mean? I want to just uh, talk to Marcus, please. You won't talk to me. Like that. That's what he just oh. Okay.
Okay, welcome back. Tuesday morning, the 10th day of May. Our hotline is there for you 24-7. Don't forget 0406 And if you want to send me an email, you can do that as well. Marcus.paul at starterfm.com.au. Well, the trial of pop star Guy Sebastian's former manager, Titus Day, will continue after the popular and highly respected judge overseeing it suddenly passed away over the weekend. The judge's name, Peter Zara. He was rushed by Ambos to Royal Prince Alfred Hospital from his Sydney home at around 8am on Thursday after suffering a suspected stroke. Now, those involved in the ongoing case between Sebastian and Day in the New South Wales District Court have been told the case will continue. In fact, yesterday, the trial was listed for mention before a new judge, James Bennett. Now, colleagues have described uh, the uh, deceased judge as a genuinely nice bloke. In fact, veteran barrister Greg James QC, who's also a former New South Wales Supreme Court judge, was friendly with Mr Zara and said that he'd worked himself to death, quote-unquote, after presiding over some of the state's most high-profile cases, including those related to Sydney hitman Abuzar Sultani's crew. He literally worked himself to death. He was a man that we will all miss greatly, Mr James said yesterday. He took on the hardest and the most difficult cases, including the recent Sultani crew and all that sort of thing. He was a fair, kind and a very good lawyer. He was a genuinely good man in all aspects of his character. Now, Mr James said the legal fraternity was in shock following the sudden death of Mr Zara, who did pass away on Sunday after being rushed to hospital on Thursday. He had been operated on in hospital in relation to a bleed on the brain before sadly passing away. Uh, Now, Mr James said that other judges are distraught, various members of the profession are devastated, and what's more, he had been suffering from ill health for quite a period of time, but he literally on the bench insisted on working, as he saw it, doing his duty as a judge to both the accused and the prosecution. Yeah, he was also a great supporter of the Lloyd McDermott Rugby Union Foundation, named in memory of Australia's first Indigenous barrister, Lloyd McDermott, who was also Australia's first Indigenous wallaby. All right, well, that is sad. Now, Attorney General Mark Speakman said the passing of Judge Zara meant the state had lost not only one of its most senior judges, but also an outstanding leader across his work as both a public defender and judge. Mr Speakman said yesterday he was saddened to learn at the passing of his honour, Judge Peter Zara SC, one of the District Court of New South Wales's most senior judges. I express to I express the state's gratitude not only for Judge Zara's work as a judge of the district court, but his significant contribution and service to the law and legal profession over many, many decades. All right, well, the Sebastian and Day court battle is just the latest high-profile case that Judge Zara presided over, having famously sentenced former Hey Dad star Robert Hughes to jail. Yeah, he sent Robert Hughes to a minimum six years jail for sexual offences on children. 
Judge Zara also sentenced disgraced former Auburn Mayor Salim Mahaja to three and a half years jail for lying to a court. He'd also authored multiple books, including one called Drug Laws in New South Wales. In an interview back in 2010 with the Sydney Morning Herald, he admitted to being uneasy about the ceremony he's greeted by each day in the courtroom. I don't know how you would cope with someone when you walk into the room saying silence or stand. It's an odd concept for a human being. I find it really troubling. All right, well, back to the case itself uh, that the former judge was presiding over, this high-profile dispute between Guy Sebastian and his former manager, Titus Day. It's over $900,000. The ex-Aussie Idol winner and the voice judge believes is owed in funds never paid out by his agent. Yeah, Somebody said to me the other day in relation to this, Gee, Guy Sebastian must have been really raking it in if he's only just recently realised, you know, he's he was short nearly a million bucks. Well, I'm sure he, he probably realised it a long time ago, but this is how long it's taken to get to court. Day, by the way, Titus Day, has pleaded not guilty to 50 charges of embezzlement as a clerk or servant and 50 alternative counts of stealing. All right, well... We'll see how that all plays out, but unfortunately it will now be heard before a new judge pass uh, after uh, the passing of one of the state's most well-respected judges, Peter Zara, over the weekend. Marcus Paul in the morning. All right, welcome back. Marcus Paul in the morning on this Tuesday. It's nice to have your company staying with uh, the law. And, of course, we do know that uh, the former chief of staff to outspoken federal MP Craig Kelly is before the courts. He will defend several indecent assault charges at a hearing in the days following the federal election. The trusted right-hand man to federal MP Craig Kelly... So he's still there, is he? Yeah, he is too. Sorry, I thought he was... Well, Craig didn't stand him down. I guess you're innocent until proven otherwise. Anyway, that's the way the law works. That's fine. The trusted right-hand man to federal MP Craig Kelly is now set to defend several sexual touching and indecent assault charges at a court hearing in the wake of the upcoming federal election. Frank Zumbo, 54 was charged in June of last year after a lengthy investigation into allegations of sexual misconduct against four women aged 27, 26, 23 and 13 between 2014 and 2020. Zumbo, who uh, for his part of course denies the allegations, is a close advisor to Mr Kelly and is the long-standing Chief of Staff at the MP's Hughes Electorate Office in Sutherland. Police launched an investigation in 2020 after the 16-year-old girl raised allegations about Zumbo's conduct, which resulted in three other women then coming forward. Now, Zumbo was pleaded not guilty to some 18 offences, nine counts of common assault, two counts of aggravated sexual touching and seven counts of aggravated indecent assault. At Downing Centre Local Court, 
yesterday, Magistrate Susan McIntyre confirmed both the prosecution and Zumbo solicitor Michael Musar were ready to proceed with a 10-day special fixture hearing, and that'll be at the same court at Downing Centre Local Court on June the 14th. So the matter was adjourned until that date. No doubt to the relief of Craig Kelly with the federal election now less than two weeks away. Marcus Paul in the morning. Hey, Joycey. Mate, I don't know what to say. This is from your mate, Jordan. Baby number 10? Are you serious? What is in the water up there at Armadale? My God. 10? Mate, you must be a superhero. Popeye's old fella. Far out, mate. I don't know what your semen's been doing, but it has been swimming upstream, chasing salmon for years and years and years. <laughs> mate, I can't believe it. My young bloke can't believe it. Joycey, I don't know what you're eating, I don't know what you're drinking, but I've got to say, mate, everything an Australian man should be is you. Armadale's finest, and mate, surely you pull up at number 10. Maybe cut it off. But anyway, mate, all the best. Go the Knights. All right, Marcus, Paul in the morning. Uh, let's have a little look at some weather, shall we? Gee, it was chilly around my neck of the woods, Western Sydney, yesterday. Uh, the rain came mid-morning and... Uh, it was, wasn't too bad overnight, but it is definitely uh, starting to get a lot chillier overnight. And the wet weather is back, uh, certainly for Sydney and uh, some areas of New South Wales this week. But two other Australian states are being challenged by Mother Nature, as Queensland is now bracing for flash flooding and WA prepares to welcome a wild cyclone. Queenslanders are being warned of another dangerous weather event with potentially life-threatening flash flooding occurring across the state. Southeast, inland and tropical coast areas could receive up to 400 millimetres of rain over the next few days after already dealing with heavy deluges across the Anzac Day long weekend. A major flood warning is in place for the Cooper Creek area in Windera with possible heavy rainfall from tomorrow, possibly leading to renewed river level rises. Moderate flood warnings are also in place for the Thompson River and the Air Creek, while there are minor flood warnings for the Baku River and Georgina River, and that's in the Marion Downs area. Uh, there were also initial warnings for minor flooding along the Bremer River and the Worrell Creek in Amberley. Now, uh, meteorologists say the predicted torrential rain could be life-threatening. So if you're in Queensland, particularly those areas that I mentioned, please be careful over the next few days. The worst of the rain starting from today, continuing through till Thursday, but it could last all of this week. A strong wind warning, by the way, is also in place for the Sunshine Coast, Morton Bay and Gold Coast, uh, particularly around the waterways too. All right, uh, now let's go to WA. Tropical cyclone Karim was last spotted some 700 kilometres west of Cocoa Island at around 2am yesterday morning. While it is forecast to intensify over the coming days, it's not expected to directly impact the WA mainland or offshore islands. However, 
despite it being a cyclone, you know, in the off season, modelling shows parts of the state could receive a deluge, 30 to 50 millimetres of rain. But the good news, as I say, is that it will miss the mainland. There are also marine wind warnings in place for the West Kimberley coast and the Pilbara coast for today as well. Meanwhile, for those of you in Melbourne, drivers are being warned of fog across the city's inner, northern, eastern and southern suburbs and the Dandenong Ranges again today. While in Tassie, there is a flood warning for the Coal River, Huon River, Macquarie River, South Esk River and the tributaries of the lower River Derwent. Uh, there's also a final flood watch for southeast and northeast catchments as well down there in gorgeous Tasmania. Marcus Paul in the morning. Good to have your company on this Tuesday. Whatever you're up to today, take it easy in all that weather. 0406521250 is the Marcus Paul in the morning hotline. You can call it at any time. Send us a text on it or, of course, leave your comments on our Facebook page. If you like, you can give me a call. What's the number, Marcus? 0406521250. Anytime, 24-7. Call me on, have your say on the Marcus Paul in the Morning Show. On Starter FM. All right, welcome back. Look, I, I know this isn't generally the kind of conversation you want to have around breakfast time, and it's pretty obvious that uh, public bathroom facilities or bathrooms, toilets, dunnies, whatever you want to call them at schools, can often be a little on the dirty side. Well, the public school mum has blasted the New South Wales government over the stinky state of the school loos, claiming kids were contracting urinary tract infections because they did not want to step inside the rancid toilets which reeked of urine. Wow, that's a sentence. New South Wales PNC Federation Vice President Yvonne Hills yesterday told the State Government Committee on School Infrastructure that bathrooms overrun with spiders grout infested with urine spray and cubicles with no locks were all driving factors. I can talk toilets all day, Miss Hills declared before launching into a minutes-long restroom rant. Can I just say of the toilets in our schools, it's absolutely disgraceful. We have children who live in housing estates who probably have better access to toilets than our children in schools. We have parents complaining that their children have UTIs, bladder issues, because the children refuse to go to the toilet during the day for toilet stops. They're not drinking water in the classrooms, so they're dehydrated all day, not going to the bathroom, coming home, and we're talking about behavioural issues in the classroom. She said local P&C groups spent a disproportionate amount of time discussing toilet issues. We have doors unhinged. We have vandalised left, right and centre. All right. In the primary schools, we have spiders. Soap dispensers don't work, so they can't wash their hands for sanitary reasons. Some of them have grout that has been there for 50 or 60 years. Really? You have plumbing issues. You have toilet seats yanked off and not replaced. Wow. She said she oversaw inner-city west schools and said even schools in 
more affluent areas had awful, unusable toilets. At that point, fellow PNC volunteer from the North Sydney area, a bloke by the name of Alan Gardner, chimed in, saying parents named toilets as the single biggest issue in schools. He said to get rid of the acrid stench, which had built up over decades and decades, significant work was required. It means the entire toilet area has to be entirely jackhammered out and completely, uh, well, a completely new room put in. It's got to get rid of the stench. Well, Miss Hills went on to report how school repairs organised by bureaucrats cost four times as much as it did when parents organised to pay for it themselves. Well... Ain't that the truth? If we go to a local builder and get all of the requirements, it's a quarter of the price when it comes through from the New South Wales Education Department's asset management team. Well, the asset management team better get their you-know-what together and start fixing up these classrooms inside New South Wales schools. Marcus Paul in the morning. Yeah, welcome back. Look, as you know, uh, the cost of living has been one of the major issues that we've been discussing during this federal election campaign. And I noticed the other day a good friend of the program, Sally McManus, and the union movement upping their claims for an increase to the national minimum wage following revelations Australians' pay packets will continue to be outrun by the cost of groceries for at least another 18 months. The Australian Council of Trade Unions has added half a percentage point to its recommendation to the Fair Work Commission, asking the industrial umpire to boost workers' wages by 5.5% in a request that would push the current rate of inflation if successful. Now, ACTU Secretary Sally McManus urged the Prime Minister, who's refused to back an interest uh, to the national minimum wage to help prevent workers drowning in bills. Scott Morrison's failure to act to back working people is a danger to the economy. Every dollar working people lose in real terms is a dollar not spent in local businesses, Ms McManus said. The headline inflation rate for March, of course, is 5.1% and is tipped to increase again by the middle of the year. The Reserve Bank forecast last week that wages would continue to go back in real terms until December of next year, with Morrison saying it was, quote, a reality of the global economy. Unquote. Cost of living pressures are higher because of what we're seeing in the global economy, Scott Morrison said in Perth last week. That is what I have to deal with on my watch, he said. McManus, though, said low-paid Australians had already cut back on discretionary spending. They will have no choice but to cut it completely. As for so many workers, cleaners, aged care and retail workers, there is nothing left after the rents, groceries and petrol. Now, the ACTU's revised proposal would lift the hourly rate in the minimum adult wage from $20.33 to $21.45, affecting around 2 million Australians who are paid the minimum wage or whose incomes are linked to a decision by a higher industry award. The Queensland Government and South Australian Governments have joined Victoria in pushing for wage rises 
with South Australia calling on the Commission to adopt a fair and balanced approach which allows real wage growth to reflect a fair share of labour productivity growth. However, the New South Wales government maintained its previous position that fair work should take a cautious approach as wage growth was best achieved through a mixture of tax reduction, limiting bureaucratic hurdles and supporting competition. Any approach to setting minimum wages must be balanced and sensitive to ensure minimum wage increases do not have a negative effect on employment. That's what a New South Wales government spokesperson has said. Impact Economy's lead economist, Angela Jackson, said she expected the Commission to lift the minimum wage by around 2 to 3%, but not above the 5.1% inflation mark. She said it was paramount that a government has a position on what wages should be after Scott Morrison said the Fair Work Commission's wage review process should be independent. She said, I think to say that wages are not something the government should not have a view on, I think that doesn't recognise the importance of wages growth to sustainable economic growth. Well, she's right. Marcus Paul in the morning. Okay, thank you for listening in this morning. Marcus Paul in the morning, 0406521250. Our hotline number, it's open 24-7, as always. And we do appreciate your comments. You can make them on the Facebook page. Send us a message that way if you would like. Well, the ongoing saga into exactly how the victims of con artist Melissa Caddick are going to be repaid has probably gone a step further. A public auction of the Dover Heights home of missing con artist Melissa Caddick risks, though, being turned into a circus. Because of the amount of publicity, the matter is attracted. That's what they say in the federal court. Who cares, though? (laughs) Who cares? It is a matter of public interest. Uh, Otherwise, how are we supposed to educate others of the, you know, many other Melissa Caddicks who may well be out there? And not only that, it's a fascinating story. That's why Underbelly did a... (laughs) a recent show on it. Anyway, Stephen Gollidge, SC, who is representing the receivers of Caddick's assets, told Justice Bridget Markovich yesterday that a fresh argument has arisen between Caddick's parents, Barb and Ted Grimley, and receiver Bruce Gleeson about the marketing and sale of the Berlangra Road property that Caddick bought for $6.2 million back in 2014. Caddick acquired the house along with an apartment her parents are claiming a stake in using funds she stole from her investors. Look, as far as I'm concerned, that should be the bloody end of it. Her parents need to get the hell out and that, you know, that parasite, her husband, Anthony Coletti, also, well, he's been evicted from Dover Heights. Uh, For a start, and I don't believe any of them should get anything before any of Melissa Caddick's victims. That's just my opinion. It's, you know, I'm not a, a legal mind, but, you know, common sense should tell you that should be the case, right? Anyway, uh, let's have a look here. We know that she was running a Ponzi scheme from 2012 until her disappearance in 2020. If she's, in fact, completely gone, I think she might be hopping around somewhere overseas. You know, having cut off her own foot. We'll never know, possibly. 
She misappropriated more than $23 million in funds from investors who were mainly family and friends. So sell both the properties, the ones of parents in, the one that Anthony Coletti was in at Dover Heights. Get as much back from all the assets as you can. Pay everybody back. And if there's a little left over, then give it to mum and dad and give it to Coletti. I would have thought it's a no-brainer, right? Only last week, the court gave the go-ahead for the receivers to take possession of the Dover Heights home, with Caddick's husband, Anthony Coletti, agreeing to vacate by May 18th, so he's got basically 10 days. Robert Newlands, SC, who is representing the Grimleys, complained that his clients were disappointed and perplexed to find the receivers had not provided any details as to how their daughter's property was going to be marketed, on what terms the real estate agents would be engaged, and how many valuations would be obtained. Uh, Gollidge said the receivers who were experienced in these kinds of sales were yet to decide on the best way to sell the house. He flagged that a tender or expressions of interest might be chosen ahead of an auction. Newlands also said the proceeds of the sale of the Dover Heights home should also be used to pay off the mortgage on the Edgecliff property where the Grimleys live as the bank is charging default interest rates. Oh, what a mess. The penthouse above Edgecliff Station was bought for $2.5 million by Caddick in 2014. Like Dover Heights, it still has a substantial mortgage. Now, the Grimleys, who are in their 80s, I mean, I feel sorry for Melissa Caddick's parents. I mean, don't get me wrong, I do feel sorry for them. But I feel more sorry, I do, for, you know, Caddick's victims. Anyway, they claim they had an agreement with their daughter to be able to live there rent-free for the rest of their lives. Well, maybe they did, that's fine, but she's gone. Anyway, they've also, uh, they also gave their daughter $1.1 million to pay down the mortgage, but the court has heard the cat expended on maintaining her own lavish lifestyle. <laughs> Yeah, she was such a parasite, this woman, that she, you know, she even used her, her mum's own, you know, mum and dad's own money uh, to wine and dine herself. I appreciate that out there in the community, it makes my client unpopular to say that they have interests that take precedence over other investors. Uh, said Newlands, representing the parents, noting the receiver has argued that the Grimleys should be treated the same way as other investors who thought Caddick was investing their funds in shares. Well, you know, I kind of get it from that point of view. I mean, that is true. I mean, she ripped off her own parents. So maybe we should include her parents in the vic as one of the victims. So maybe, at, at the very least, they should get their $1.1 million back. The judge ordered that the receivers can appoint a real estate agent, prepare a contract for sale and market the house. But before any sale is agreed, the matter will return to court for another directions hearing on June 15. Yeah, like I say, the whole thing is an absolute mess. By the way, if you're on Spotify, look up a, uh, a podcast, Liar Liar. Melissa Caddick and the Missing Millions, a wolf in chic clothing. Uh, wonderful work done by investigative journalist Kate McClymont. 
Um, she's done, uh, and I can't remember, I'm sorry, the, the Channel 9 journal involved with uh, her in this podcast, but it's a really, really good podcast. If you get the chance, have a listen to it. It's called Liar Liar. You can get it on all podcast platforms. Marcus Paul in the morning. All right, welcome back. Marcus Paul in the morning. Now, sometimes you, you hear stories or you see them or you read them and you shake your head. Uh, this is one that got me, or had me very perplexed. A super cheap auto worker who confronted a woman as she allegedly used a pram to steal from a store on the Gold Coast has reportedly been stood down from his position. Now, footage of the incident, which uh, a lot of you have seen probably on the news or on social media, went viral last week after being posted to social media. Uh, The video clearly shows this bloke confronting the woman after spotting her in the Gold Coast super cheap auto store, throwing a stack of stuff into the pram. And we're not talking a pram that has what they normally have in it being a child. It was empty. It's a ruse, which apparently happens quite often, I'm told, to knock stuff off. You know, because prams these days can be completely covered. You know, you've got a sleeping bub in there, so you want to keep them nice and snug and dark and all the rest of it. Anyway, uh, this bloke apparently saw the shopper put a stack of goodies from Super Cheap Auto into the pram. Anyway, uh, the video shows the confrontation outside the store in Ashmore and he accused her of shoplifting. He claims the woman does not have a baby in the pram. Do you want me to ring the cops? He's heard to say the woman respond, ring the cops, mate, let my baby go. Uh, She was carrying on saying, let my baby go. As the man grabs the handle of the pram, he says, you haven't even got a baby in there. Now, look, If a bloke and a woman are fighting over a pram and a woman's screaming out, let my baby go, of course, the optics aren't good. As the pair fight for control of the pram, at least two boxes of apparent stock fall out of the pram. Oh, the baby was holding it. Anyway, the footage does not show how the confrontation ended. Super Cheap Auto's parent company, Super Retail Group, has not responded to uh, any repeated requests for comment, but the Gold Coast Bulletin has cited a Super Cheap Auto spokesman in reporting the employee was stood down while a review into the incident was completed. The publication has also reported a number of Gold Coast businesses are interested in offering employment to this man. Well, why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't they? You know, here's a bloke that's concerned about a business, somebody's ripping it off, and he's confronted a shoplifter. Anyway, um, Queensland Police, for that matter, have apparently said that no formal complaint has been made about the alleged stealing offences. I don't know how this will finish up, but if I was that bloke, I don't know. Uh, Look, has he been stood down with pay while they investigate? Well, maybe. I hope so. Otherwise, maybe he should take up another offer on the Gold Coast. Marcus Paul in the morning. Con artist, Melissa Risk, being turned into a circus. If you like, you can give me a call. What's the number, Marcus? 
0406521250 anytime, 24-7. Call now and have your say on the Marcus Paul and the Morning Show. On Starter FM.